case file number 7.6, that missile gap, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw, still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief, you, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector and the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. All right, so I'm going to start off today's episode with a quote. We are losing the satellite missile race with the Soviet Union because of complacent miscalculations and penny-pitching budget cutbacks, incredibly confused mismanagement, and wasteful rivalries and jealousies. Uh, these are words that JFK wrote once when he uh, spoke in regards to the United States falling behind the Soviet Union when it came to our missile missile arsenal. Yeah. Uh, and those words were very false. Yes. Though at the time he did believe them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because a lot of stuff we'll get into. This is one of those corners of intelligence that I hmm. feel like I coming in with having read a fair bit of what you're going to go over, but we'll see where I'm <laughs> missing. Because I know our dozens and dozens of users of, of listeners haven't complained about it, but I feel like I interrupt you entirely too many, much in, in these spy things. It's like, no, this is one I think I know, but I'm going to let you get to it. <laughs> or I'm going to try and fail miserably. Everybody, anytime I interrupt superfluously, drink. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, um, the U.S. was, in fact, ahead of the Soviets, um, if anything. Mm-hmm. And when Kennedy took office... He and his military advisors still had to deal with like the whole issue of like, well, we've talked about the missile gap for a lot and like, you know, everything that goes into that. So the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library Museum website displayed on the 50th anniversary, they had a secretly taped conversation within the Oval Office and had a transcript of it and everything and an entire panel on the missile gap controversy. And during it, Kennedy suggests that it wasn't just generals in the Pentagon and other politicians who put forth the idea there was a missile gap, but it was the Eisenhower administration itself that had kind of begun this entire thing. And another quote I found that's very appropriate for this day and age, I think, but in regards to the missile gap was Kennedy saying, quote, the great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Belief in myths allowed the comfort of the opinion without the discomfort of thought. And so the entire idea of the missile gap was born in 1957 when the CIA intelligence estimate and a few other reports from quasi-government agencies and whatnot suggested that the Soviet Union was way ahead of the U.S. in long-range missile capabilities. Um, They were estimating that 
1961, the Soviets would have 700 plus long range missiles and we would have maybe a dozen and have to be relying on bomber bases um, to do anything. Yeah. And the Gaither Commission, which produced the Gaither Report, called for a massive effort to increase our military spending by upwards of 50% and redesigned the U.S. Defense Department. And they identified 1961 as a year of maximum danger where the Soviets could launch a surprise attack at any point. And, you know, keep in mind, too, this was 16 years after Pearl Harbor, so that was still very fresh in everyone's mind. This is 1957, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like three years or so after the Soviets had detonated their first nuclear bomb. Yep, yep, exactly. Three years. I know you're going to get into a lot of these facts, but like mm-hmm. on the face of it, if you look at what we what we were able to do and the expense that we went through to do to do the things that we were capable of and the fact mm-hmm. that they were playing catch up to a degree, it's hard to square that estimate with like the known facts that we had of the level of effort that that would take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in 1956, there was actually a bomber gap um, that we believed was happening. Mm-hmm. And the analysis was done showing how many bombers the Soviets had put up during an air show and footage of their factories. And it was decided that by 1961, they could have at least 500 bombers or more. And the CIA actually discredited this report. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cited that they could not be producing anywhere near that many bombers. Um, they, you know, they did the calculations on the expenditure and everything else. And yeah. they were like, no. But the bomber gap kind of quickly became the missile gap mm-hmm. um, when we learned about the Soviets building ICBMs. And a lot of the missile gap theory came from an actual gap in intelligence gathering, mm-hmm. according to uh, Gene Pote, uh, who was on this panel. <clears throat> He said, quote, there was not a single spy case officer in the Soviet unions in those days. So we had we had no one to kind of of like feed us any intelligence or anything like that. And because of that, Eisenhower pulled in a bunch of people at one point, basically just laid it out to them that like, hey, we need spies in Soviet Russia. We need planes doing recon and we need satellites built to do recon because those planes are going to get shot down. The KGB has and and Russian intelligence generally, Soviet intelligence generally, has always been very good at being a defensive intelligence service. Yeah. And so, like, it's not an accident that we were in that situation. Basically, any flavor of dissident, anybody who was going to be ideologically compromisable was being sent to the gulag. This was the era of Stalin. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a surprise that assets were hun- were hard to come by. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this was kind of pushed by Eisenhower to the CIA to kind of develop this entire thing. Mm -hmm. The CIA kind of replied, uh, like, we don't do that. Like, we don't do planes and satellites. And he was like, well, tough. Like, it's it's on you now. Go forward and prosper. So the satellites were part of the Corona program and were rapidly pushed forward following the shooting down of the U-2 spy plane uh, piloted by Gary Powers over the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And... Like I, won't, I won't touch much on the Corona program or Gary Powers, um, but I feel like those are kind of two episode topics that we can just... Yeah, well, I was just going to... There's an entire book about Area 51 that is probably mm. worth an episode just to kind of summarize all of the stuff that is now public about Groom Lake and the aircrafts that were the aircraft developed there. But mm-hmm. as far as those CIA spy plane programs, that led to both the U-2 and the uh, the A-12 Mm-hmm. which was the predecessor to the Blackbird. Basically, 
the A12, the Y, the the YF12s uh, that remained when the Air Force took over the program were painted painted black and turned into essentially turned into Blackbirds. But those were two, <laughs> um, like those are two of the most famous planes that came out of the Lockheed Skunk Works, and they were massively successful at what they were designed to do. In fact. I believe I just recently saw an article where they're just begin they're just about to decommission the Dragon Ladies, the U2s. They've been flying for more than 50 years. That's crazy. Yeah. Beyond, you know, the lack of just kind of getting intelligence, uh, there's also the issue of there wasn't much intelligence analysis for what little information was coming. You know, there were are Nobles and unknowables, um, and the analysts were basically expected to report on the strength of the ICBM forces in the future, expected for like the next two years and five years that the Soviets would be capable of doing, and what would their capacity in like five years and on be to attack the U.S. And like that's that's completely unknowable. Like you can't really like you could speculate if you had good data, but they didn't have any good data. I, yeah, again, I'm trying to restrain myself, but. Actually, outside of your what you're talking about is that they had uh, in the Reagan era predicted this enormous tank plant that was bigger than a city, mm. and we had better intelligence at that point uh, about mm-hmm. knowing yeah. whether or not that would that was actually built. But right. like, if you've got the data to have some idea of the physical plant available, and you know certain technological hurdles done then mm-hmm. you can make assumptions and like we use that right now to try and get an idea of where iran and north korea are in the development of the technologies around nuclear weapons and their delivery right yeah but like you were saying there was no data to go by and the soviet union was a big enough country where only some things needed to be imported mm-hmm. one of the things i did find it that i found interesting generally was the kind of things that they were importing generally had to do with technology. Mm, yeah, uh, they imported a small number of IBM mainframes at the time, uh, right around then, a little bit, actually a little bit after that, like early mm. mid 60s. And they ended up cloning them and not really improving on them very much, not by anywhere near the same rate that, uh, that computers improved in the West. And so they right, were right. limited to the computing power of beginning nasa for mm-hmm. decades <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like we've talked about like before i feel like in, for the soviets um they were really good at deceiving our intelligence efforts and they didn't want us obviously to know what their force numbers and everything were uh that air show that i mentioned where you know that people were kind of counting the soviets knew people would be there yeah so they were flying the same aircraft <laughs> over the air show and just like you know the loop back was far enough over the horizon where you couldn't see the planes just turning around coming back and doing another run yeah it's like i thought that was, i thought that that was the story that that came from and i was just mm-hmm. like oh he's gonna get to it if it's there <laughs> yeah 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 it, it also it reminded me of uh I think it was World War II, uh, just pre-D-Day, uh, where we had divisions of just balloon soldiers and balloon tanks. Yes. Um, that we would just set up for German reconnaissance to fool them into thinking that we were like amassing on different borders. Yes, the 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 art battalion. Mm-hmm. That's such a great story. <laughs> Maybe we need to do a grab mm-hmm. bag episode of World War II stuff, because that's interesting stuff and it's kind of on brand, mm-hmm. but I don't know that we want to dedicate an episode to each of them. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I feel like there's not like enough there for a whole episode to go into, but very cool, like little stories. Mm-hmm. So many people also, you know, in the US believed that the Soviets hated us with a passion during this time mm-hmm. and that the Soviets would commit themselves to working 24 hours a day, seven days a week in order to destroy us and our way of life. And that's another thing that you can't really disprove. Yeah. After the fact, we actually know that they had a similar assumption about us, about us being this implacable enemy that nobody could, that they couldn't negotiate with. They were convinced mm-hmm. we were going to strike first, and they were convi- and we were convinced that they were going to strike first. Yeah, 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 exactly. We've now been able to view documents and discussions from the time, from, you mm-hmm. know, their um, presidium, and to find out that their main committees were actually talking and focusing on buildings and putting more floors on some apartment buildings. They were very concerned that when uh, Yuri Gagarin was coming back, that they needed to strengthen a lot of the balconies of their buildings because there was concerns of um, some of them collapsing due to the weight of how many people were watching. So like at the same time that we were like, oh my God, like they're just working nonstop to destroy us. Their actual documents were like, hey, like we need to like shore up some of these balconies and like what about this homecoming event and stuff like, like that. You know what engineering we really need more of? Civil engineering. Yeah, in, in 1959, Khrushchev uh, made the decision that the Soviets were spending just way too much on military, and he wanted to refocus on the consumer economy. So mm-hmm. he cut down on conventional forces and basically just gambled with strategic missiles. And, you know, they were going to take years to develop, but he was like, we'll throw money into this so we can pull back on how many soldiers and other hardware that we're buying, and then we'll redirect those funds to our actual economy. The thing that's interesting about that is basically that was Eisenhower's idea. Mm. Eisenhower was like, okay, militaries are really expensive. And he would know he ran the biggest wherever uh, from Mm -hmm. one side. And so he was like, nuclear weapons, we're going to use the threat of nuclear force to basically never have to go to war again. Mm-hmm, right, like full full scale world war again, and even then, and we're, I don't think that this impinges on your topic, but their war plan was total war. Or the definition of we're launching everything, essentially leading into mutually assured destruction as the plan, because we didn't have the money or we didn't want to spend the money to do anything mm-hmm. else of the full scale fight that it would have taken otherwise. Yeah. So like both sides were making kind of the same, hey, if we make it make the only alternative, everything's going to be nuked into a into a crater, nobody'll start anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I didn't <clears throat> put it in my notes, but the article that I was reading, um Kennedy was very for more conventional forces. And one of the reasons was that was because Eisenhower kind of viewed, okay, if Russia were to come into Western Europe and invade, we would just nuke them in retaliation Mm -hmm. and people were like well that's literally signing a suicide uh no like because they'll nuke us in response so kennedy and many others were like no no we need to bring up conventional forces again because if they were to do that we would send conventional forces instead to kind of like you know hold off on destroying the world well also like when they (laughs) actually ran some of the numbers a lot of this comes from daniel ellsberg's book uh the doomsday machine he, as an economist, started running the numbers of, hey, what would happen if this actually, if your plan actually happened? And they would have basically mm-hmm. killed all of Europe anyway. 
because of all the fallout and everything that would have happened from defending NATO would have killed basically everybody in NATO. <laughs> Not everybody, but right. like the death tolls were literally in the 100 million range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And because the Soviets <clears throat> had made the decision of their own free will to start falling behind when it came to building these missiles, they obviously tried to mislead us uh, into thinking the U.S. was uh, actually the ones falling you know, super far behind. Mm -hmm. And the Russians had, you know, the Soviets. An ace up their sleeve. Or yeah, sorry, the, <laughs> the Soviets had a mistake all podcast. <laughs> uh, they had an army colonel working uh for them. Uh, he was working in the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, named William uh, Wellen. And he had access to US intelligence estimates. So he could kind of give them all the numbers the US was looking at. We did not have the the same sort of thing where we could, you know, actually see their stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was estimated in 1961, <clears throat> the Soviets would have 200 ICBMs. And you probably know this, but care to guess how many they actually had in 1961? I believe it was four. Yep, four. <laughs> <laughs> so slowly, due to satellite recon and the U-2 planes, uh, the analysis could read all of the data. And we began to kind of realize that, oh, hey, there's nothing there, actually. And this kind of... Um, I forget the, the term the article used. I didn't write it down, but there was some kind of like disassociation here because it was like, wait, they don't have these missiles. Yeah. Like they don't have these bombers. Then what are they doing? Like they must be doing something. Like they, they've changed their plans and we don't know. Like, oh God, like what's going on? That sort of thing. Yeah. I believe that there, that and, there was a lot of like brand new technology speculated on that we had no evidence anybody had. Uh, had made any progress on and it's like oh mm -hmm. well what if they have <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and there's a lot of politics mm -hmm. in this as well the air force and the cia budgets uh were heavily tied up yeah. into everything going on the navy and the army like in the article cited that the navy had this competition um with like oh who's gonna who's gonna have the nukes you know it's yeah. gonna be battleships blah, blah 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 they lost that and now they were like well, nukes are actually really stupid and we don't like them anyways, yeah. sort of philosophy. Yes, uh, it was the, <clears throat> the inside the DOD budget battle. Uh, Ellsberg talks about it in his book that he, he prepared a classified briefing of, hey, this is how many nukes they have, but he couldn't tell them how they got it because the keyhole satellites that allowed that to happen were still like super duper ultra double secret uh, probation classified at the time yeah and it's it like we know for sure they have four nukes <laughs> and nobody would believe him like mm -hmm. nobody who knew the day who knew that he was right could back him up as to why yeah 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 exactly uh actually so there's one actually cool thing that i wanted to mention about the keyhole satellites the first generation of the spy satellites do you know how mm -hmm. they got the pictures back from just like skimming the article it looked like they took the pictures then Put the film into capsules and then just like basically pooped out the capsules. Yes, they were they they went through orbital reentry uh, and, mm -hmm. and landed in more in in a somewhat aimed spot. They airdropped down or they they space dropped down the film. Mm -hmm. That's fifties and sixties engineering right there. <laughs> yes, well, yes, yes, like, yes. They got it done, but it's just like the modern eyes is like, why would you have to do that? It's like, uh, it turns out mm -hmm. that was an innovative solution to the problem, son. Yeah, exactly. One of the panel members mentioned a story that because the Navy was kind of so bought her over the nuclear thing that actually a Navy admiral uh, cited that he didn't think nuclear weapons were all that powerful. And that if you were to drop a nuke on one side of a um, 
I don't know if it was a football field or in, like a, a landing strip, but and you were standing on the other side, you would be unharmed because um, that's just how like you know non-lethal they were. Did this lead? Did this lead to a major test that we may have heard of? Because I think it did. Did it? I don't know. I think that that, or at least an attitude like that, is what led mm-hmm. to the Bikini Atoll test. Oh, really? Uh, where they had ships, um, decommissioned ships, mm-hmm. moored at progressive distances outside of the atoll. And it was much worse than they predicted, than even the pe- the physicists predicted, because that was an early uh, nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the early, the earliest kind of real examples of a modern nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. And it it really changed the tune on that, but like that kind of attitude led to the bikini atoll test, which ended up being oh, okay. a. And I'm going from memory here, but I believe that it was mm-hmm. it was definitely more significant than anybody in the navy expected it to be. But I think it was more significant than basically anybody had predicted it to be. It wasn't as bad as I think Trinity, which was the first test and was way off the scale mm-hmm. of what anybody predicted. But it was like it was a bigger boom than than expected. Right now that I'm saying it, I'm like I'm less confident that I'm not conflating the Trinity <laughs> test and the BGT Atoll test mm-hmm. in terms of like that magnitude thing. But I that's the mm-hmm. way I remember it anyway. No oh, damn. Yeah, so the CIA, Air Force, their budgets all tied up into this. Mm-hmm. As they kind of realized how little the Soviets had, they started to rationalize, well, crap. Um, well, they could be like, you know, doing something else to, you know, have a first strike possibility, like keep the money coming. Yeah. Something could be happening. So, you know, obviously when, you know, not many bombers were found, they could say, oh, yeah, but no, it's missiles. It's definitely missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we couldn't find missiles, it was like, oh, like, yeah, you know. Submarine um, missiles. We would never see yeah, we're not... mobile missile platforms, actually. But mm-hmm. the thing is, both of those things actually did eventually happen. Yeah. And, and like you, you alluded to, you know, the Russian material that we can actually look at now basically says they were afraid of us attacking first. Mm-hmm. And Khrushchev kind of <laughs> realized that by bluffing so much, he was actually making it's strategically worse for him in the long run. Yeah. Because, you know, we were starting to just build up this crazy arsenal and now he had to bluff more to kind of make it look like he, you know, had just as much. Yeah. And so while the CIA was making huge headways intelligence gathering capabilities, uh, the Soviets obviously still knew about our collection efforts and were doing their best to deceive the numbers. And in spite of getting actual numbers, the military still ignored the data due to their misconception of what the Soviets actually had or were you know, actually doing at the time. There were Air Force generals who would look at slideshows of photos and point to a random tower in Siberia. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, clock tower and basically be like, well, there's, there could be an ICBM in there. And you can't really prove or disprove that because it's just a picture of a tower. And like, well, yeah, like they yeah. could have something in there. So this is one of those things where we act, where I can actually tie it back to, to real InfoSec. Mm-hmm. There's... For a really long time, this is, comes up less now, but it, for more than a decade of my career, someone would bring up something that I like to call super hacker, where mm-hmm. there's somebody who can break into anything, like straight out of the movies. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that doesn't exist. Prove to me that it exists. I very much tried, in that, and I felt that at least at the time I was in the minority, where every time we talked about risk, and what a thing could be, I try and tie it back to real witnessed capabilities, whether it's been right. demonstrated theoretically or like in a talk versus we've seen it in the wild. Mm-hmm. And that was all part of my threat calculation. 
I think that as a practice, we're a little bit better about that, at least in the zeitgeist. But I don't think that we teach threat assessment as an explicit practice. No, because that is something I encounter a lot. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's not, this isn't communicated as much like when you're going to school mm -hmm. for security or anything, is that there's a lot of really cool stuff mm -hmm. people do and exploit, but it's in a very fine controlled yeah. setting. And when you talk about that being exploited in your environment and it requires the hacker to gain physical access to your systems that are behind you know, armed guards, electrified fences, 10 different doors that are badged and in like a bomb shelter. But if they have physical access, they already won the video game. Like it, yeah, what other security measures are you going to try and put in place? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's the thing. Like I've always tried to argue with management because they will sometimes be like, well, you need to patch this. And if if it's a simple patch, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a whatever, you know, I'll patch it. If the patch involves something crazy where it actually like causes major disruption or like makes the tool kind of unusable in some way i argue this is not worth it yeah because like like you said they will have physical access to the system they can do so much more than this one like thing this is risk-based decision making and some mm -hmm. of that risk-based decision making is having the perspective of what are the real capabilities and yeah. that's a lot of extra work in fact basic concept of this podcast was giving perspective to people who don't have the same kind of grounding, at least that I do. And you, you have the schooling and I, and I have a little bit more experience, but mm -hmm. this is what stuff that actually happened. The, this is the way yeah. that we've seen real world attackers work. This is the way we've seen in the wild stuff happen. So you can compare that to new situations rather than just assuming that like a really good example of this is there have been in the lab tests to show that a VM can sometimes be made to do some kinds of memory peaking to disclose private keys on VMs that are running on the same host environment. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, that particular vulnerability was probably 10 years old at this point and only affected AVM, I think at the time, but not VMware and not, and not um, some of the other environments, but it's just like, it was only done in this highly controlled academic environment. And yeah. the folks that I was working with were going nuts because we were running stuff on VMware. It's like, A, VMware isn't even vulnerable. And B, to get to that point in our system, we've already lost the keys. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. If someone's able to get that access in that far in, Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> you get you get it. Like I'm already out of a job. We're already completely boned. We're already compromised to the point where I cannot with any certainty tell you what we have kept safe. So mm -hmm. why? <laughs> yeah. And if it's like super spy from the movies, like I'm dead. Yeah. Like they, they already like killed me on the way to the server room. Yeah. So this is one of those things where you have people that are very focused on compliance and, and want to get their numbers down to zero. And it's like it's not no vulnerabilities. It's not no risk. It's account for every risk and make a real decision on it, not ignore the fact that you occasionally you have to accept risk by making sure you have none in your environment because nobody ever gets there. Yeah, but that's hard. Checklists are so much easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, but the thing is that, <laughs> that the people who are filling out the checklist are taking the hard thing and putting a harder thing on the people who actually have to do the work. It's harder to get people to do the remediation, then fill out the checklists. Here's an example. 
before I get back to the topic at hand, sure. is that like smart cards, mm-hmm. it's kind of a mandatory thing nowadays to have two-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. But compliance of smart cards is to have it everywhere on every system and every tool possible. Yeah. That's not feasible because you have service accounts that might be like transferring files back and forth. Mm-hmm. Now they might be using you know private key, public key, but you don't have a passphrase associated to that because it's automated. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. pass it a password. Mm-hmm. You might have, you know, <clears throat> cough, 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 tools that don't support smart card authentication in any way and can't be tied into PAM or anything like that, mm-hmm. that are required for your operations. And yet your company, agency, whatever, will basically be like, well, you're not compliant. Yeah. And it's like, well, no one is. Right. Like there's a 0% compliance on Because let me tell you, every mission. Everybody's got a router in their environment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. no router does straight PIV authentication. You can do yeah. RSA authentication, you know, token-based authentication using token code key, but that is in government parlance a level three credential and not a level four credential, which a PIV is. Yeah, exactly. So back to the topic yeah. of random uh, clock towers, maybe containing missiles. Uh, people would also point out that like there's no command and control around this like clock tower there's no supplies there's mm-hmm. like there's literally nothing for like you know hundreds of miles yeah. so even if there was a missile in here it would be like basically just worthless again this goes back to if you actually think about the infrastructure because we know when mm-hmm. we were making all the silos that dot parts of the united states the missiles we had in there weren't using package storable propellants they had to regularly yeah. go through fuel maintenance mm-hmm. I know entirely too much about this because I I have <laughs> read the book Ignition multiple times because that's the kind of nerd I am. Um, <laughs> but like, it's the personnel rotation for all the stuff to be able to fire it mm-hmm. at a moment's notice. Well, a moment's notice, half an hour's notice. Um, right. It, like in the real world, that's what it ends up being. Even if you can stealth the command and control through radio, you still have all of the just infrastructure of keeping the people alive and the propellant stuff and and the maintenance or at least checking state on the on, on the nuclear device itself because even our like late cold war warheads the mm-hmm. folks that build and maintain those still call them science experiments. they're not just yeah. and stable yeah and you know like when we were talking about those those four actual missiles mm-hmm. that the, the soviets had that number was never actually reflected in any intelligence estimates mm-hmm. at the time. Ellen Dulles, uh, head of the CIA at the time, he was called into Congress to testify and asked about the Russian missile capabilities, but he refused to testify about the contents of any national intelligence estimate. Um, they had just done one days before mm-hmm. um, this um, committee. Uh, the estimate predicted the Russians had 35 ICBMs. Um, at the time, the U.S. had 12 Atlas A missiles. After refusing to testify, Senator Stuart Symington asked him to divide the number 36 by 12. And when Dulles responded, the New York Times ran a report that the CIA chief had just basically conceded the Russians had a three to one advantage over us. And, you know, like I I won't go into it too much, but the panel discusses a lot that there was no there were no oversight committees at this time. Yeah. the president, the CIA, they were doing their own thing. Congress didn't know anything about it. So there were leaks coming out, sometimes pushed out by the Air Force, mm. you know, leaking like, oh, the Soviets actually have this number. So that like, you know, 36 divided by 12 thing, like it had been leaked out. Someone got a hold of that. 
he asked them and you know new york times is getting leaks too and they just ran the, with the story and everything like that and this just you know kept stoking the flames of like oh god the soviets are so far ahead oh no like yeah. what's going on and like you you mentioned this earlier eisenhower was stuck because you, you couldn't say yeah no there's like only four and we know because of our super sickest spy planes and satellites like yeah. you know look here's the pictures like check it out so yeah like you said like you're kind of like well no, we, we know there's only four. Yeah, he got caught. Like 100%, we know. He caught in his own lie, got caught in his own lie at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there was a question of like, obviously how to tell Khrushchev, hey, dude, we know you're lying. Yeah. Uh, we're calling you bluff. And the Kennedy brothers had a back channel with him. And, you know, they could have used that. But the decision was made to do a public speech by Deputy Secretary of Defense to basically tell the American people, hey, we're actually headed the Soviets. Mm-hmm. And that kind of made Khrushchev um, go before the presidium and say that he knew now a war was possible and that the U.S. would attempt to play this game and kind of force concessions because the U.S. knew that they were at the advantage. Um, and they could say, like, hey, we, we, we overpower you. Like, do what we say now. They never wanted a war. Instead, just wanted to kind of push the U.S. around, you know, with this misleading information, to utilize their allies and other things. Diplomacy is war by other means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'm just saying, I'm just pushing back on the idea that they didn't have designs. They didn't have, we can't say for sure that they wouldn't have gotten aggressive because they didn't have the ability to. Mm-hmm. They were trying to push us around by the perception that they were in the military superior point. And mm-hmm. I've heard exactly what you're talking about before, that by putting Khrushchev in this position in, with his own internal politics, we forced his hand and caused an unwanted outcome. And this is backwards looking logic, but I have a really hard time believing that we could predict within the degrees that we were pushing things and on the diplomatic level, what things were going to have what effects. Yeah, it's, um, I didn't write all this down in my notes, but <laughs> the, the article in the panel kind of talk about this, of uh, that you, you see a lot, like, especially like comparisons to Hitler, Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, these kind of like tyrants and how big and pompous they are. And um, someone on the panel basically were like, they're, they're puffer fish. They blow themselves up. But like, you know, like when it comes to Hitler, his generals wanted really nothing to do with like the stuff that he was planning. Mm-hmm. And in fact, had we kind of like sneezed in their general direction, there's a possibility that like things would have been halted. Like he might not have gotten the support that he needed, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's all hindsight 2020. Like who's to who's to really say? I don't know as much about Hitler's rights to power as I might, but I definitely get the impression that there weren't that many opportunities later on in his rise to power that we would have been able to turn the corner on that. Um, and it is something that we need to remember, like mm-hmm. You know how how uh, the previous president used the the uh, term "America first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not the first time that term was used. Yeah. Running up to World War II, that was what the folks that were Nazi sympathizers in the United States, at least ideologically, not necessarily, although occasionally actually supporters of Hitler, uh, mm-hmm. called themselves. Henry Ford was involved with them. Charles Lindbergh was invented associated with them. Yes. So it's easy now to think of the United States as being against Hitler and Nazism, but 
that was <laughs> yeah. it was far less of a cut and dried thing before World War II, before they invaded Poland. Like well, it wasn't just that they invaded before they took over France. Mm-hmm. And even then, there were still holdouts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, New York Times had mm-hmm. an article, Herr Hitler at Home in the Clouds, where they kind of wrote this like, you know, like, ooh, like, look at Hitler. He's doing all these amazing things and everything, like very endorsing article. I believe that that's called a hagiography. <laughs> <laughs> that was, what's that? 19, 1939 mm-hmm. um, that they wrote that. Yeah. There were a lot of Nazi sympathizers. And who's to say? Um, you know, I, I agree with you that like, you can't just basically be like, well, the U.S. did this and they bullied Khrushchev and then he like did did all these things. Um, and like, oh, like, woe is him. Like, yes, like if they had the power, they would have done the exact same thing to us. That's just kind of how the game is played. The Game of Thrones. I don't think that we can say that they would have done the same as us. I believe that they would have been more aggressive. Yeah. I don't have a ton of evidence to say that. So I'm going to say that there's a possibility that they would have been more aggressive mm-hmm. with it. given. The vicissitudes of human nature, I think that we're either afraid that we weren't ahead or when we thought that we had a distinct advantage, we were much more concerned with retaining that advantage than than using it as as significant leverage directly against the Soviet Union than we might have. Mm -hmm. So I think that there was a lot of room if positions were reversed for them to have been uh, more aggressive than we were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this obviously, all this kind of led to the whole Cuban Missile Crisis Mm -hmm. and everything going on there. And I think, you know, it's somewhat appropriate given the anniversary that, like, we kind of repeated a lot of this kind of, like, misinformation and intelligence gathering when it came to Iraq Mm -hmm. and WMDs and everything like that and the unknown unknowns, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the playbook that they realized worked is always what Reagan used to get his unprecedented expansion of of the military in peacetime. So mm-hmm. I guess the point is that that playbook got you has been used multiple times to increase military spending without a a credible authentication of the threat, let's say. Yeah. yeah. And that obviously led us into the Patriot Act. Um yeah. which had a whole host of stuff and i will end this with basically saying like now we are coming up on the restrict act mm-hmm. which in and of itself uh seems like the patriot act on steroids yeah so that's that but hey what's privacy uh- <laughs> find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the gibson on reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the wikimedia foundation or electronic frontier foundation